0: This morning, we're going to be in Deuteronomy chapter 11, and so if you want to turn in your Bibles or open your phones and, and get your app ready for that, typically what we do is I, I would read uh, the, the passage of Scripture that we're in, um, and then go ahead and dive into the message. Because it's a lengthy passage this morning, we're looking at uh, almost the entire chapter of Deuteronomy 11 up until verse 25. What I'm going to do is I'm just going to pray over the sermon uh, I will dive right in, and we will cover every single verse in different chunks as we kind of work through. So if you would uh, be so kind as to bow your heads and pray with me over the message this morning. Father God, we are so grateful to be here this morning. Lord, what a, what a privilege and an honor it is to elevate and to magnify your name with our voices just a few moments ago as we, we sung those songs praising your name and Lord how great you are. And Lord help us to keep at the forefront of our minds your greatness as we examine your word this morning. Allow us to see how amazing it is that you sent your son Jesus Christ to die on the cross for our sins. Lord allow us to see uh, how amazing it is that your mercies are new for us every single day. And Father, Just as Mel prayed, I want to reiterate, Lord, that this would not just be another Sunday, another check in the box as we begin our week, Lord, but this would be a time, a sweet time of worship and and meditation and and honor to you, Lord. So I pray that as I uh, do my best to rightly divide your word of truth, Lord, that your Holy Spirit would speak through me, that it would convict the hearts, the minds, the lives of the people that sit under this word, that we would be better people because of it. Father, may your name be glorified and honored in this place. In Jesus' name, amen. So up until this point in our sermon series through the book of Deuteronomy, we've been made aware that Moses has been giving the Israelites a recap. There has been a lot of reiteration of their history as a people group, as a nation. But in addition to that, he's been giving them uh, the law. He's been giving them a reiteration of the law, Deuteronomy, meaning the second law. And a note about this law, before we just kind of dive right into where we are in this passage, hopefully by now, we understand the purpose of the laws of God. They were not given by uh, for, for the means of restriction or holding these Israelite people back from just doing certain things or burdening them with all of these different do's and don'ts, or even to add guilt to any of them. No, they were given by God to the Israelites and kind of indirectly to us today in a way. Why? They were given ultimately to demonstrate God's love and commitment to us. These laws were given for the benefit of those who were about to enter this promised land, to be a nation set apart, to be a nation holy, a holy people of God. These laws that were given were laws for life. Think about a prescription that you might get filled from the doctor. You go and pick it up at a pharmacy. Typically with those prescriptions, there are restrictions. There are regulations. There are rules to abide by in order for that medication to accomplish its purpose, yes? And here's, here's the kicker. You cannot and you should not ignore those restrictions and those regulations and those rules. Why? To protect your life, right? There's certain things to keep you alive. Those regulations are not necessarily there to restrict you in any way shape or form. You might think of it that way, but like for example, you might see instructions that say don't take this medication along with this or that. That's a restriction. Or you might see something like, do take this medication if X, Y, and Z apply. And here's the thing. None of us, hopefully, would never just randomly go to our medicine cabinet, select medication based upon our own personal preference to do what we think is best, Or what we like best, you know, all while ignoring the instructions in the bottle, you might think to yourself, okay, I'm going to go to my medicine cabinet and, well, I don't really feel like taking the big pill today because that's just not my thing. I don't really like big pills, so I'm going to take the smaller pill instead. Or I don't really like the color red, so the red pills really aren't doing it for me. I'm going to go with the green ones. What would we call someone who took medication that way? We would call them a fool. That's foolish. And yet... Is that not what we do? Is that not what the Israelites ended up doing with the law of God? So just as we know that, and we we understand that medication with its regulations exists for our good, how much more should we consider the law of our God? You can see it in the very first verse of this chapter, what obedience to the the Lord's commands entails, which is love. Love is an aspect of obeying God's laws. It's all about loving God and responding to God's love of us. Famous American pastor and author A.W. Tozer once said, the essence of sin is the rebellion against divine authority. Now, what is the divine authority present here in the book of Deuteronomy? It's the law of God. But the concept of rebellion doesn't just happen. No, often it stems from a misplacing of your priorities. Divine priorities in this case. The priority for every person chosen by God, every Christian, is that of love. You are to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Jesus stated in Matthew chapter 22, it's right there, that that is the greatest commandment. One of two. Love the Lord God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. But it's funny, as Christians, and actually, I'll, I'll lay Christians aside. I, I won't speak for everybody. Maybe it's just me. I don't know. I'll use myself as, as an example, but I'm really, really good at telling other people what they should and should not do. It just comes naturally to me. I think maybe because I'm a father of two toddler boys. I don't know. It's literally what I'm doing constantly. Do this, don't do that. Stop doing that. Stop yelling at him. Put the knife down. No, I'm just kidding. Like, But seriously, anybody who's a, a parent of toddlers will understand. That's literally your life. But of course, there are things as Christians that we must do. And there are things that we must avoid. I'm not, I'm not trying to get rid of the law here. I'm not denying that. But why? Why should we Do this and avoid that. Jesus answers plainly in John chapter 14, verse 15, and we've looked at this verse before. He says very clearly, if you love me, you will keep my commands. If you love me, you will keep my commands because once you love him, once God has your heart, he should naturally have your obedience. I would even argue to a point that he should at least have your desire to obey him. So is it about the do's and don'ts of the law? Is that what Deuteronomy is? Or is it about your priorities? Your priority to love the Lord your God? The idea that you can do all the right things in life, keep all the laws you want, that won't make you any closer to God. This is what... Back in Jesus' time, and even post-Jesus, there were people walking around known as Judaizers. They were ones who were hyper, uh, um, they were all about the law and keeping all of the laws, like down to a T. They were very legalistic in their mindset. As a matter of fact, the Apostle Paul uh, would probably have fit that category. He was one who, he says this of himself. He says, if you hold me and my life up against the law, I'm blameless meaning I've done it all, but he didn't know God. And I want to be careful here. I don't want to swing the pendulum in the opposite direction either. I don't want to, I don't want to argue for antinomian behavior. That's anti-law behavior. I talked about this with my youth group a couple of weeks ago. I don't want to go that way because Paul says over antinomian behavior, people who You are Christians in name only, but aren't living according to God's law in any way, shape, or form. Paul says in in the uh, letter to the Philippians that he weeps over people like that. See, these are people who, obeying God's word no longer really matters. It's just about my relationship with God. You know, these are the type of people that walk around and say things like, love is love, live your truth. Only God can judge me. Yeah, by his law. Christ said it has to be both. If you love me, you will keep my commands. You will obey me. You cannot and should not separate the two. And before we dive in, I want to address this question. Get us thinking about this question as we work through this passage of Scripture this morning. What's love got to do with it? And most of you right now are probably singing Tina Turner lyrics in your head, and that's fine, but let me draw you back in, okay? Because I did the same. I almost made that my sermon title, and I was like, that's a bad idea, okay? Okay. I, wanna, I want you to I wanna help you realize where we're going in this passage today. Listen, God wants your hearts. Once he has your heart, once he has your love, once he has your complete and total devotion to him, that is the spring from which our obedience will flow. It's not do all the right things so that I can be closer to God. No, it's be closer to God so that you can do all the right things. Verse number one, therefore, and the age-old question that comes with that word is, what is the therefore, therefore? Okay? So God, prior to this passage, through Moses, has been reiterating all that he has done for them, how he has loved them, how he has kept them, how he has treated them with incredible mercy and grace throughout their time in the wilderness. And because he has done that, that's a Real quick summary of everything that we've covered so far. Therefore, love the Lord your God and always keep his mandate and his statutes, his ordinances and commands. Therefore, love and obey the Lord your God. And the three sermon points I have for you this morning will hopefully help us understand the high calling that we have of why we must love and obey the Lord our God. So if you're a note taker this morning, point number one, is simply this, love and obey because of what God has done. Love and obey because of what God has done. Let us, since I read verse 1, let's pick up in verse 2. And I want to read verses 2 through 7. So God, through Moses, says this, Understand today that it is not your children who experienced or saw the discipline of the Lord your God, His greatness, strong hand, outstretched arm, his signs and works he did in Egypt to Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and all his land. What he did to Egypt's army, its horses and chariots, when he made the water of the Red Sea uh, flow over them as they pursued you, and he destroyed them completely. What he did to you in the wilderness until you reached this place, and what he did to Dathan and Abram, the sons of Eliab the Rumanite, when the... In the middle of the whole Israelite camp, the earth opened its mouth and swallowed them, their households, their tents, and every living thing with them. Your own eyes have seen every great work the Lord has done. So, let's recount who Moses is speaking to here the entire Israelite nation is before him. Now, that could have been tens of thousands. That could have been millions. There's a debate there. Uh, Pastor Fred actually wants to put out a podcast discussing those two views. Uh, There's a little nugget for you. Coming soon. Okay, so he's speaking to the nation of Israel, okay? The old and young. This is the new generation, though, of Israelites, okay? It's understandable, then, that there are adults present in, in, in front of Moses who were children and grew up, seeing things that their now children would have only heard about but did not personally experience like them. They would no doubt have some recollection of their time in the wilderness with their parents and grandparents who have now passed away due to their uh, disobedience. They were not going to enter the land. And and Moses is very clear. I think he's pretty clear in verse 2. Hey, I'm not talking to your children right now. As a matter of fact, we'll see later on, he he will. He's going to instruct these Israelites to, to these Israelite adults, that it's their job to teach and instruct these kids in the ways of the Lord. But no, Moses is saying, listen, I'm not talking to your children who, unlike you, did not experience or see the discipline of the Lord your God. Moses concludes in verse 7 the reason for this. He says, your own eyes have seen every great work the Lord has done. I'm speaking to people who have seen this, who've experienced it firsthand. Moses is clear. Hey, adults in the room, I'm talking to you. Who, With your own eyes have seen incredible, incredible things. Your children will be held accountable too, but that, it'll be your job, verses 19 through 21, to teach them. You've seen things, though, that they haven't seen. You've experienced things that that they haven't experienced. You were there. I'm sure there are times as parents, little side note, that we're sitting underneath a sermon and we're thinking to ourselves, and I'm talking about kids or adult children, like parents of kids or adult children, you're sitting under a sermon and you're constantly thinking to yourself, man, my kid needs to hear this. Well, maybe, bear with me for a second, perhaps God is speaking to you and you are to internalize that word, and you are to teach them. We'll get to that. So yes, Moses says, you've seen God's greatness. You've seen his deliverance at the Red Sea. That was verses two through four. But you've also seen his discipline in the wilderness. Now, these adults Moses is talking to would no doubt have an image burned into their memories forever of a day when there was rebellion in the wilderness camp. You can read about this in Numbers chapter 16. Back in the wilderness, due to pride and and jealousy amongst a man named Kohath, who believed he ought to have a higher position in the camp, he gets his son Korah, two men named Dathan and Abram, they were the ones mentioned in verse 6 of our passage, and roughly 250 prominent Israelite leaders to kind of lead a rebellion against Moses and Aaron, God's anointed leaders of the Israelites. They led a rebellion. And Moses then tells the nation of Israel that if those three men, Korah, Dathan, and Abram, the ones kind of leading all of this, he says, if those three men plus the 250 rebels die a natural death, you'll know they're right. You'll know that the Lord has not sent me. That's what Moses says. The Lord has not appointed me as your leader, but verse 30 of Numbers chapter 16 says, if the Lord brings about something unprecedented and the ground opens its mouth and swallows them along with all that belongs to them so that they go down alive into Sheol, then you will know that these men have despised the Lord. And guess what happened as soon as he was done speaking? The earth cracked open and swallowed these men, all of their belongings, into the earth and closed itself up. They died a supernatural death, not a natural one, therefore proving that Moses and Aaron are God's anointed. So Moses is saying, many of you were kids when that happened, as you were children, when God parted the Red Sea. You've seen these things and you remember them. You've seen and you remembered, therefore, love and obey the the God of deliverance. Love and obey the God of discipline. Now, what about us? Because we've not seen the earth crack open and swallow people alive. You can probably think of a neighbor or two that you wish that would happen to their house. But either way, we've not seen this. So my question is, is what have your eyes seen? What have you experienced? I think that's a fair question to ask. You might say, well, why is that a fair question? Because that's your testimony. As big or as little as it may seem, it's part of your testimony. 1 John 1, 1 to 3 says, what was from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we have observed and touched with our hands concerning the word of life, That life was revealed and we have seen it and we testify and declare to you the eternal life that was with the Father and was revealed to us. What we have seen and what we have heard, we also declare to you so that you may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. We all in some way must experience God for ourselves. I'm not talking about a secondhand encounter. I've seen God do some miraculous things in my parents' life or I've seen some God do some miraculous things in my friend's life or I've seen God do miraculous things through Redemption Church. But no, no, no. What about you personally? Now, you might be saying, well, Pastor Marty, I've just never seen God do anything miraculous in my life. Well, guess what? Do I have some news for you? He has. One, you're alive. He has given you life. We sometimes sing the song, it's your breath in our lungs, therefore we pour out our praise. That's a miraculous thing. Life is a miraculous thing, that God would give us life and sustain our life day by day. The reason we have air in our lungs is because of God. So that's one. And what's more, he has demonstrated the most miraculous act of love through the person and work of his son, Jesus Christ, on the cross for your sins. And now he offers you a free gift, of eternal life through belief and faith in his son and his work on the cross. Tell me God has not done something miraculous in your life. And I love, just as John mentioned in the passage we just read in 1 John 1, that your testimony, the things you've seen God do, they matter. They matter not just for you. God uses it, not just for yourself, but he uses it for other people He he literally says, so that they may also have fellowship with us. Tell others about what he has done in your life. Love and obey because of what God has done. Point number two. Not only should we love and obey because of what God has done, we ought to love and obey because of what God will do. So we uh, we pick up in verse eight. Love and obey because of what God will do. Look back at verse eight with me. Again, God through Moses, I just want to be clear about that, says, keep every command I am giving you today so that you may have strength to cross into and possess the land you are to inherit and so that you may live long in the land the Lord swore to your fathers to give them and their descendants a land flowing with milk and honey. For the land you are entering to possess is not like the land of Egypt from which you have come, where you sowed your seed and irrigated by hand as in a vegetable garden. But the land you are entering to possess is the land of mountains and valleys watered by rain from the sky. It's a land the Lord your God cares for. He's watching over it from the beginning to the end of the year. If you carefully obey my commands I'm giving you today to love the Lord your God, to worship him with all your heart and your soul, I will provide rain for your land in the proper time. The autumn and the spring spring rains, and you will harvest your grain, new wine, fresh oil. I will provide grass in your fields for your livestock you will eat and be satisfied. For the nation of Israel, the relationship between love and obedience and strength is very clear there in verse eight. And why do they need strength? Well, and I'm not gonna reiterate and go into great detail about this, but remember, I think it was Pastor Greg that talked about a couple of weeks ago, the land they're going in to possess is not just some unoccupied real estate. It is It is a land possessed by other nations, other pagan nations that are living in rebellion against God and they need strength in order to do what God would have them do. And if you want strength in order to do that, you must love and obey the Lord. Devote yourself completely to him and just look at the result of their obedience. In verse nine, it says, so that you may live long in the land the Lord swore to your ancestors to give them or to give them and their descendants a land flowing with milk and honey. Now, it's not good to speculate, really, ever about Scripture. I mean, but sometimes, humanly speaking, I just, I have to imagine, it's hard not to think about, this is is coming from Moses. And Moses is not going in. We know that. Spoiler alert, Moses dies at the end of this book and doesn't go into the land. That's not a spoiler because we've already told you, okay? But Moses is not going in. And so I'm trying to imagine him talking about the idea of, listen, where you came from to where you're going, oh, it's not even, it's not even comparable. This land you're going into, this land of milk and honey and, and, and mountains and valleys where, where it's watered from rain from the sky and all of these wonderful things that God's going to do, I'm not going to experience any of that. But they are. And it's, it's a land the Lord their God cares for. It says he is always watching over it from the beginning to the end of the year. I want to talk a little bit about this because it's important to understand without just glancing over passages like this, I want, to, I want you to understand the significance of the land God was giving to them. First off, the land the Israelites were going to possess was different than where they came from, the land of Egypt. You see, in Egypt, rain is a rare experience. All agricultural growth, in Egypt depended on the overflow of the Nile River. What would happen is they would divert the overflowing waters of the Nile, if it happened, into little channels. And from that, they would try to irrigate from that water. It was an excruciating process with no guarantees, by the way, that it would produce anything, but it was completely depended on their work of irrigating that water. They had to do a lot of things in order to make sure that they even had water to work with. And Egypt could receive anywhere from less than one inch to up to seven inches of rain per year. That's it. And I preached this on Friday in Sarver and literally for the first half hour of my sermon, it probably rained like 1,000 inches. It, it opened up, and so that's a rare experience back then. It's an astonishing thing to think about how little rain there was, what a dry and barren land the, the, the Egypt, uh, Egyptian land was, where they came from. But Israel, the promised land, this land of mountains and valleys, the mountains that drink in the water from the sky— And without boring you with any geographical details of the area in which Israel is located, do some research on it. It's fascinating. But know this, it's very unique. It's a unique location for a specific land. And rainfall is a huge blessing to them. I actually learned that from our brother Mark, who we stayed with over there, just how incredible rainfall is there. And there are seasons for it. There are the autumn and spring rains and all of that. But All of that to say, rainfall is a huge blessing, even to this day. It's just the way the geographical layout is, it matters. But okay, why do I bring all of this up? It's almost like God knew what he was doing. It's almost like God says, I'm bringing you from a place where agricultural growth and sustainability for life always, year after year after year, depended on your work and your hands. And I'm bringing you to a land now where you have to rely on me and me alone. That's it. And he promises that with their outpouring of love and obedience to God, he promises that that would be met with an outpouring of rain in order that their agriculture may... That they may, what does it say? Literally, if you carefully obey the commands I'm giving you today to love the Lord your God, worship him with all your heart and soul, I will provide rain for you in the proper time. It's not going to be too much rain. It's not going to be too little rain. It's going to be the perfect amount. And you will harvest your grain, new wine, and oil. I will provide grass in your fields for your livestock. You will eat and be satisfied. And what's more, God says, he's always watching over it. I think this is more than just a promise of physical blessing to the nation of Israel, but a spiritual one as well, one that we still see kind of play out today. What's God saying here? Hey, this land that I'm giving you, it's ultimately mine. I care for it. I watch over it. My eyes are on it from the beginning to the end of the year. Now, there is a huge debate, not to get political, there has been an ongoing debate between two people groups um, that have been at odds with one another for quite some time now. Sure, that's not shocking to anybody in this room. About whose land that is. And while they're, to put it lightly, fighting with one another about whose land it is, God steps in and says, you know what, you're both wrong. It's mine. You could say, well, no, it is one of their lands. Well, Leviticus 25 suggests otherwise. Read Leviticus chapter 25. God's very clear about whose land that is. Now, God gives and promises that land to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and the 12 tribes which comprise the nation of Israel. That's Genesis 12 and 15. But God says, it's my land. My eyes are on it from the beginning to the end. But Moses says, be careful. He warns them if you allow yourself to become tempted and enticed to bow and worship to other gods, if your love and obedience is displayed in anything other than Yahweh. Look at verse 16. He says, be careful that you are not enticed to turn aside, serve and bow and worship to other gods. Then the Lord's anger will burn against you. He will shut the sky. There will be no rain. The land will not yield its produce and you will perish quickly from the good land the Lord is giving you. Do not follow other gods is a command that is repeated time and time and time again, not only in anticipation of the nation of Israel occupying that land, but once they're in that land, that seems to be the recurrent theme of even prophets coming to the nation of Israel saying, stop worshiping other gods, turn and repent back to the one true God. It's almost like God knew the attraction that there would be in the land of Canaan, the, the promised land, to these false religious systems. Now, I'm not going to get graphic here. This is not, that's not my intention. But the worship system of the Canaanites was often sensual or sexual in nature. It appealed to the most basic human desires. and God knew that. Unlike the purity of worshiping God the one true God. Now, I'm not going into any detail about their worship systems. Do some research, read about it. It's, it's I'll, I'll tell you this, it's filth. It's pure and utter filth. It's an abomination before the Lord, but it was attractive to our fleshly desires. It would have been attracted to their fleshly desires. Now, along these same lines, Pastor John Piper, he has a famous quote and motto to which he lives and teaches by, which goes something like this. God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. Now notice that he does not say God is most glorified in us when we try to obey his rules. No, it's when our heart's desires are satisfied in nothing. And I mean nothing but him and him alone. Because out of that satisfaction, comes our desire to want to please him, our obedience to him. It's like any relationship. Just think about your day-to-day relationships. When your heart, or just look at how the world operates, when your heart is not fully satisfied with a particular individual, what do you do? You go seek that elsewhere. God wants their hearts. He wants our hearts. He wants yours and mine. He commands fairly and for our good that we be ultimately satisfied in him and him alone, and that's for our Good. So, application, what about us? What would we rather do? How would we prefer to live our lives? We really have two options. Would we rather be in a position where we continue to work in our own effort, in our own strength, to provide everything that we think we need in this life striving and working tirelessly without a guarantee, by the way, that any of the efforts that we put forth brings anything of satisfactory into our lives. Satisfaction. It might be temporary, but lasting. So do we want to live that way or do we make the decision today, this morning, right now, to lean into, to grow in love and trust and obedience in the God who promises that he will provide everything that we need by his own power and his own divine authority. Now, sadly, this is not just a Christian versus non-Christian way of living. This has crept its way into the church, into the Christian circles, this type of outlook about puffing us up, pumping ourselves up, Making it all about you and what you can do in this life in order that you would be satisfied, because ultimately that's what God wants for us, right? He just wants us to be happy. Yeah. But instead of being, I'll just say it personally, instead of me being puffed up, I'd personally rather be poured on. I don't wanna make it all about me. I wanna have the John the Baptist mindset of like, listen, It's not about fame and and recognition and and what people think about me. No, he must increase and I must decrease. It has nothing to do with me. But personally, when I submit to God, I know that he promises that he will pour over me his blessings. Now, Now, knowing full well that those blessings most likely won't look like how I want them. See, I might think, oh, okay, I submit to God and then he gives me everything that I want. He gives me a better bank account and the house that I want and the car I want to drive and make sure that like, my kids are all that. Listen, God will give you exactly what you need in the proper seasons, but it might not look like what you want, but you'll know ultimately that it's what's best. And as verse 15 puts it, I will eat and be satisfied. You will be satisfied. And God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. Point number three, and lastly, not only should we love and obey God because of what he's done and because of what he will do, I would also argue that we ought to love and obey because God's word leads to life. Love and obey because God's word leads to life. Look at verse 18 through 25. Again, God, through Moses, continues. He says, imprint these words of mine on your hearts and minds. Bind them as, as a sign on your hands and let them be a symbol on your foreheads. Teach them to your children, talking about them when you sit in your house, when you walk along the road, when you lie down, when you get up. Write them on the doorposts of your house and on your city gates, so that as long as the heavens are above the earth, your days and those of your children may be many in the land the Lord swore to give to your fathers. For if you carefully observe every one of these commands I am giving you to follow, to love the Lord your God, walk in all his ways, and remain faithful to him, the Lord will drive out all these nations before you, and you will drive out nations greater and stronger than you. Every place the sole of your foot treads will be yours. Your territory will extend from the wilderness to Lebanon and from the Euphrates River to the Mediterranean Sea. No one will be able to stand against you. The Lord your God will put fear and dread of you in all the land where you set foot as he has promised you. Now, we see at the the beginning of this section of scripture, verse 18, this is a slightly different command than what was given at the beginning of this passage. Rather than just a general rule for the people of Israel to love and obey the Lord as a nation, Moses now shifts to a more personal tone. This is a command by a lot of conservative and orthodox Jews that has been taken quite literally. There are things called phylacteries. I believe Sean Fenner talked about these. Now, I brought this up on Friday, and I said, listen, if you want to walk around with a phylactery on your forehead and on your arm, like literally things that have scriptures on your forehead and on your arm, I'm not going to laugh at you. Fenner apparently said he would laugh at you, so just know that I'm the better person. No, but seriously, there are people who take this quite literally, Orthodox Jews, phylactery is a Greek word meaning protection, and they're boxes that you can visibly, visibly see on someone's forehead or on their left arm, typically, I believe. Now, however, the application of this does not need to be taken literally. We all need this. What do we all need to do? Look at the, the verbiage that's used in verse 18. Imprint these words of mine. Bind them. On your hands. Let them be a symbol on your foreheads. We can all practice the basic application of this command. The truth of God's word ought to govern how we think. That's the symbol on our foreheads. The truth of God's word ought to govern what we do. That's the sign on our hands. But before any of that, before we can think on the word of God and do what it says, you have to imprint them on your heart. Again, this goes back to the idea that it's not simply about a a religious outpouring of obedience. It's about truly loving God and loving his word and imprinting his word. Like, you know what it means to imprint something? Like, imprint the word of God's on your hearts and on your minds. Keep it at the forefront of everything that you think. You say, you do. Not only that, here's the next principle. Teach them to your children. So parents, this one's for you. Or I would even argue anybody with influence over kids, but specifically parents here, because it says children. Parents, once you've internalized the word of God, and I'm gonna pause there, and I'm gonna, I wanna let that statement sink in for a second. Once you've internalized the word of God, Because this next step can't happen, and verse 19 can't happen unless verse 18 is applied first. Unless you imprint these words of mine on your hearts and you you bind them as a sign on your hand and let them be a symbol on your forehead, how are you supposed to then teach them to your children? Now, this is something that's very important to me uh, as someone who tries my best to pour into the teenagers that we have at our youth group week in and week out. Um... Here's the first thing I want to say, and I want to be very gracious on how I say this. First off, I'm not here to replace you. This is my job as part of Redemption Church for the whole congregation, but specifically with the youth week in and week out, myself and the other youth leaders. We are to teach your children, and yet we're not supposed to replace you. Now, I'm here to help you. In January, we are, we're, we're trying to schedule a, a parents' night where we can bring the parents of the teenagers, seven through twelve Monday, 630 to 830. There's a little plug for you. But seriously, we want to bring the parents in, in January, and we want to teach you how to imprint words, the words of God, on your hearts and bind them as a sign on your hand and symbols on your forehead and teach them to your kids. We want to help you with that. But here's the thing. Talking about them when you sit in your house and when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. I I can't do that. I'm with them for two hours a week. They're with you the rest of the time. And these are very specific commands. Talking about them when you sit in your house. I'm not in your house, typically. When you walk along the road, when you're out just doing public errands and just kind of hanging out with your kids, talk about them, talk about the Lord with them. When you lie down, when you're about to go to sleep at night, talk about the Lord with your kids, pray with them. When you get up, listen, when you're sleeping, when you're awake, uh, this is about to become a Christmas song. Listen, when, when you're out in public, when you're at home in known privacy, talk about the things of the Lord. And I want to argue that, listen, parents don't ever be tempted because I know it's tempting sometimes as, as an, adult, uh, an adult parent whose kids are still toddlers, but I imagine it probably gets worse when they're teenagers, I don't know. But I don't want you to be tempted to look at your children's lives what they're going through, what they're experiencing, and what they desire as an inconvenience in your life. Don't do it. Rather than an inconvenience, see it as an opportunity to pour into them consistently this life-giving word of God. So not only that, he says he goes on, write them on the doorposts of your house and on your city gates, so that as long as the heavens are above the earth, your days and those of your children may be many in the land. This is a guarantee for what? for life. Fred talked about this a couple weeks ago, that Jesus states in John 10, 10, that he has come, that we, his sheep, the Christians, the people who believe in him, that we may have life and have it in abundance. And that, and this passage and that, I was just talking to somebody about this before the sermon. Listen, I could come in here and from this passage, preach the best prosperity gospel that you have ever heard in your life that God just wants you to you know, have an abundance of things and he's going to provide for you this, that, and the other and you're going to have everything that you need and yet this John 10.10 10 aspect of life and life in abundance is not some flippant phrase to be used for our own prosperity gospel nonsense. Life abundant in Christ is full satisfaction and rest and assurance and comfort and stability in him and him alone and that's it. And that's all we need, by the way. So, The same promise then in a couple couple verses down that is faith, the same promise that is given in this passage is faithfully reiterated to Joshua as he goes to lead this same group of Israelites into the promised land in uh, Joshua chapter one, verse three. The Bible says this, I have given you every place where the sole of your foot treads. Sounds familiar. And then the latter half of that verse says, just as I promised Moses. This is the same promise promise. And the latter half of verse 24 in our passage is some serious geographical territory that God is promising them. Now I could go into, there is a lot of eschatological and end time significance to the regions that, because this is, this is a lot more than the nation of Israel uh, as we understand it today being presented here. Uh, we're not, we're not getting into any of that, but just know it's some serious geographical territory that's being promised here. And That's an awesome thing. But where I want our focus to go in conclusion of this point is in verse 25, a summation, I believe, of these verses. Verse 25 said, No one will be able to stand against you. The Lord your God will put fear and dread of you in all the land where you set foot, as he has promised you. And it happened. They didn't think it was possible, remember? Remember? Remember all the way back in the introductory sermon of this series, when Pastor Fred was talking about, he was talking about this. Prior to where we are now in the story, there were 12 spies sent into the land. Uh, they all came back. Two of them were good. Ten of them were bad, if you know the kids' ministry song. But ten of those spies returned and said, listen, the people in this promised land, whoo, they are way too big for us. We are way too small to be able to go in and conquer them. They are We're afraid of them. They'll never be afraid of us. We can't do it. When in fact, it ended up being the exact opposite because God had gone before them. You can read about this in Joshua chapter two. Joshua ends up sending in two spies himself into Jericho. They met with a woman named Rahab, the harlot. and, And guess what she tells them in verses nine through 11 of Joshua chapter two. I believe this will be on the screen. This is what she tells them. She says, I know the Lord has given you this land. And that the terror of you has fallen on us and everyone who lives in this land is panicking because of you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt and what you did to Sihon and Og, the two Amorite kings. You completely destroyed across the Jordan. When we heard this, we lost heart and everyone's courage failed because of you. For the Lord your God is God in heaven above and on earth below. And I can just imagine the, the look on the two spies' faces when they think back to, this is exactly what God promised would happen through Moses. This is the exact same thing. If we would love him and keep his commands. So what does this mean for us then? For the Israelites, love and obedience to the Lord was literally a matter of life and death. Like it was conquered or, or conquer or be conquered. That's That's it. Now for us, I would hyper-focus in on it's as simple as love the Lord your God, walk in all his ways, and remain faithful to him. Now, everything in life hinges on that. All the commandments can be summarized, I believe, in these three phrases because I would believe that love your neighbor is only possible if you love the Lord your God, walk in all his ways, and remain faithful to him. And each of these phrases speaks of more than just a bare and compelled obedience, like obedience for obedience' sake. No, what they speak of is a real relationship of love between God and his people with obedience flowing naturally from that relationship, and obedience which leads to life and life abund- abundant. Now, God promised to fight the battles for an obedient Israel. Many of us sitting here today would love for God to show up and fight our battles too, but we have very little interest in obeying Him, let alone cultivating a deep relationship of love from which obedience will flow. See, when Israel walked in love with the Lord and was obedient to Him, they were unbeatable. That's literally what we read here. No man could defeat them. Now we have the same promise, but not for physical battles. But for spiritual ones, 1 John 4, 4 tells us that the one who is in you is greater than the one who is in the world. I believe this is why uh, the Apostle Paul in the book of Romans says that we are more than conquerors even though we are like sheep being led to the slaughter. We don't have to fear death anymore. We don't have to fear those who can uh, kill the body, but rather we fear the one who can steal both body and soul and destroy them. I'll end with this. Proverbs 27, 19. As water reflects the face, so the heart reflects a person. I read that not too long ago, uh, just in my own personal Bible reading, and I circled it. As water reflects the face, so the heart reflects a person. Um, And I asked permission to do this, so I'm not going to embarrass him. He knows that this is coming. Um, Most of you know Garrett. Garrett. Garrett is the one with the big beard who literally stands like this the entire time during worship, which is awesome. Uh, Garrett, when we were over in Israel, um, Pastor Fred mentioned we stayed, and when we were in Capernaum in Galilee, we stayed at an Airbnb uh, with a woman named Gila, who's like the Mother Teresa of the Congo. She's literally like the coolest lady ever. Um, And the first night we were there, we were all just sitting around, getting to know each other, talking, and she starts, you know, just asking questions about all of us, like, yeah, I'm married, I have two kids, and Pastor Fred's like, yeah, I'm married, I have kids, and Greg's like, yeah, I'm married, I have a lot of kids, and all of that, so then she gets to Garrett, and Garrett's like, I'm just here for the ride, you know what I mean, like, I, I'm not married, I don't got kids, whatever, but then she just starts, like, asking questions, she gives him a platform, Just to, she wants to hear his testimony, and I've heard his testimony about a half dozen times now, but that night, there was just I love Garrett's testimony. If you don't know it, ask him. I mean, I'm, I'm sure he'd be glad, to, not all at once, but like ask him sometime. And, and as he's walking through his testimony and talking about the constant pursuit of God in his life and how he you know, repented and turned back to the Lord. And now he always says this phrase kind of in summation of his, of his uh, testimony to kind of conclude it. He says, and right now, I'm just trying to say yes to whatever it is that God has for me. That's obedience, but what Gila said in response to his testimony, I, I texted it to myself right then and there because I'm like, I'm using this for my sermon conclusion because I knew I was preaching this when we were in Israel. Amen. So this is what Gila says in response. She says, isn't it incredible? She could have picked any, any moment of his testimony to highlight. And she said, isn't it incredible? Just as you were talking, all I could think was, man, God just wants our hearts. God just wants hearts. And I want to tell you, God has his heart. And he ain't letting go. And the natural response that I've seen from this guy, even in the past year, once he's given his life back to Christ and and God has gotten a hold of his heart, is that it's obedience. I just want to say yes to whatever it is that God has for me. And so if you're sitting here today, worship team can actually come up now, so I don't belabor this. This will force me to wrap up quicker. But seriously, if you're sitting here this morning and you want what Garrett has, and I'm talking to non-believers or believers at this point, maybe you're someone that doesn't really, doesn't really understand what does it mean to give my, that God has my heart? What does it mean to give my heart to the Lord? What does that look like? I want to give you an opportunity to know what that looks like this morning. And this takes a step, step of faith, Right? I'll be right down here in front, worshiping, doing my thing. You come bug me during these last two songs and I would gladly, gladly show you from scripture what it means for God to have your heart. I'd love to do that. But if you're also a Christian here and you've been living this life of, you know, God has my heart, but man, I've I've turned aside and I've been enticed to go and serve and worship other gods, whether that's your job, whether that's, kids' sports, whether that's your own sports obsession, whether that's, I don't know. I want to give you an opportunity this morning. And I mean, I want to give you a real opportunity. And I don't want to call anybody out, but these are just stairs. But they can represent an altar. If you want to come up and pray during these last two songs, no one's going to look at you weird. No one cares. Because hopefully they're dealing with what's in their own heart. But I want to invite you you want to come up and spend some time in prayer to the Lord and leave something here and say, God, I'm sorry for occupying my heart and being satisfied or trying to be satisfied in other things in my life. I don't want to give my heart back to you. You can come up as well. If you want someone to pray for you, Sean, Sean Fenner is here. I'll be here. Uh, Michael, I might even have you on this dude. Like if you want to, if you want someone to pray for you, you, know, you can come up here and even just raise your hand. We'll come up and pray for you, pray with you. But seriously, just do business with the Lord this morning. Would you pray with me? god we are so grateful to be here oh, what a privilege it is to just be in your presence to worship you to reflect on what you've done in our lives what you promise you will do for us and lord the miraculous reality that your, your word leads to life and that's what i pray for these people this morning they would experience true life in your son jesus Father, we love you. And give this time. To-